All right. Hello, everybody, and thank you again for joining today's call. This is the fourth of our Solutions 2020 Policy Working Group Series. I'm Ed Meyer, and I'm partnering with Business Board to lead this policy effort for 2020. This working group series is pairing policy experts with local business leaders from around the country to outline challenges facing our country and to develop real-world policy solutions. We're launching groups across many different issue areas. We started with infrastructure, foreign policy, and small business, and this is our first call on the future of work. We're thrilled to be partnering with Outfits Payne and the Future of Work Initiative at the Aspen Institute and with Massachusetts State Senator Eric Lesser, who will be helping uh, lead this working group. And they're going to kick us off today with our first uh, uh, issue brief. I'll be moderating the conversation. A little bit of background on Business Forward for those of you new to its programming. Business Forward organizes local roundtables, Washington fly-ins, conference calls, webinars, and trainings for more than 100,000 local business leaders across the country. More than 650 mayors, governors, members of Congress, and senior administration officials have participated in programming, including two presidents, a vice president, and more than half of the women and men that are currently running for president. And this is all thanks to the support of more than 60 of America's most respected companies. For our Solutions 2020 working groups, we're going to be producing issue briefs on specific policy areas based on that input from policy experts and local business leaders. And we're going to share the final version of these issue briefs with all the presidential candidates for 2020 and provide trainings to help business leaders use those recommendations that emerge from the groups so they can be strong advocates for reform in their home cities and home states. Moving on to today's call, I'm happy to introduce Al Fitzpain and Senator Lesser. Al serves as Executive Director of the Future of Work Initiative at the Aspen Institute. Prior to his work at Aspen, he served as Chief of Staff at the Department of Health and Human Services under Secretary Sylvia Burwell. And he also held a number of other senior roles in the, in the Obama administration. Uh, he was at the Department of uh, Treasury, and, and he served as Deputy Chief of Staff and Assistant Secretary for Legislative Affairs. He's also served on the Hill for Senator Evan Bayh and for Congressman, uh, former Congressman uh, Rahm Emanuel. Eric Lesser was elected to the Massachusetts Senate in November of 2014. Uh, he represents nine communities in the 1st Hampton and Hampshire District, serving Western Massachusetts as one of the youngest members of the state Senate. Senator Lesser has quickly earned a reputation as one of the hardest working public servants in the Commonwealth. During his first term in office, he helped pass significant new laws relating to substance abuse treatment and, pre and prevention, job training, and the promotion of tourism and the arts. Senator Lesser holds several important leadership positions, including chair of the Joint Committee on Economic Development and Emerging Technologies. He also serves as the, uh, important for this call, as the co-chair of the Working Group on Future of Work for the New Deal, which is a national network of progressive, pro-growth state and elected officials. Uh, so today, Al and Senator Lesser will be leading a briefing on automation and a changing economy. You can follow along with the issue brief by uh, using the open visual interface link that was emailed to you with your dial-in uh, number for this call. We're looking to you to, on the phone to provide comments, feedback, and questions uh, to help us revise this issue brief before publishing it publicly and to help guide the direction of the issues that you want to cover in the coming weeks and month, uh, months on this Future of Work group. Currently, all the lines are in listen-only mode but you can participate in two ways. You can email your question or comment to us at futureofwork at businessfwb.org. Business 
That's futureofwork at businessfwd.org, and we'll read it aloud. Uh, please note the name of your organization or business and where you live in your message. You can also press 1 on your dial pad at any time, and you'll be entered into the queue to provide your comment and question live. So feel free just to press 1 at any point now or during the presentation, and we'll get you in queue to ask a question or provide your comment and insights. So, uh, and the final note is that this call is being recorded and will be made available on the Business Board website following the call. So with that, I'm going to thank uh, Al and Eric Lesser again for joining us, and I'll kick it over to Al to start our briefing. Great. Thanks, Ed, um, and thanks to uh, everyone at Business Forward for the opportunity to uh, join the call and be part of this working group. I couldn't be uh, more honored to join it with uh, Senator Eric Lesser, um, given his leadership on the issues as part of New Deal, as Ed mentioned, and as uh, a state senator in Massachusetts who has really been a leader on these issues uh, in his uh, time so far as state senator. So um, as Ed mentioned, uh, I'm going to keep my remarks uh, to 10 minutes. I will provide a kind of high-level overview of the debate around automation, how it relates to our changing economy, um, uh, lay out a couple of the kind of major policy areas, and then turn it to Senator Lesser to walk through some of the work that he's doing on the ground in Massachusetts um, uh, and how he's responding to these challenges. So, uh, so the, on the executive summary, what I wanted to do um, here was just frame out a couple of high-level takeaways at the beginning of the presentation um, and then use the rest of the slides to better illustrate some of those points. So first, Technology and automation have a long history of impacting work. And while there are uh, other important forces to consider, whether it's globalization, trade, immigration, demographics, uh, increased automation, as we have experienced, has coincided with a long-term trend where our economy has been adding and not losing jobs. Second, and probably more importantly for the conversation around the future of work, the composition of the types of jobs in our economy as a result of technological change, has changed dramatically. Third, the convergence of artificial intelligence, machine learning, data availability, uh, improved computing power <clears throat> suggests that our, the impact on our workforce could be more profound and happen faster than what we've experienced in <clears throat> previous economic transitions. Fourth, the 20th century advanced a policy framework that helped soften and mediate the impact of technology, and now the task for legislators like Senator Lesser is to determine what framework we will need to develop in the 21st century. So I will close the presentation with a couple of thoughts on that front and then again turn it over to Senator Lesser. So next slide. Um, as I noted in the introduction, this slide just simply illustrates that the U.S. workforce has been growing steadily over the past 70 years, and I could have gone farther back uh, uh, if I needed to. Um, and again, what this shows is in 1950, we had 60 million workers. Today, we have a workforce of about 160 million. Um, and over you know, this period of time, we have seen a kind of an array of new technologies, whether it's the personal computer in the 80s, the internet in the 90s, iPhones in the last decade. And we continue to experience kind of growth in the number of jobs in our economy. And in fact, if you go back to 1950, you know, there were basically 270 occupations listed in the census, and the only one of those occupations that has been eliminated due to automation is the occupation that's called elevator operator, if you may remember. Um, so again, the automation 
doesn't necessarily equate to uh, mass job loss. So next slide. Um, is it then fair to say that we really shouldn't be concerned about technology and automation? Um, and I would argue no, because technology and automation has had a really profound impact on the composition of jobs in our economy, and that's what this slide is um, illustrating. And what um, it shows is that the types of jobs in our economy has changed. And what this slide does is divides our workforce into two categories, jobs that involve routine activities and then those that involve non-routine activities. And it further breaks it down into two subgroups, those that are manual jobs and those that are cognitive in nature. And the top line takeaway is that the jobs that are non-routine cognitive work have effectively doubled over the 1995 to 2015 time period. Um, conversely, non-routine, um, I mean, routine work, whether it's manual or cognitive, by contrast, has stayed flat or declined over time. So just along this axis of non-routine versus routine work, you see a big difference in terms of the types of jobs that are growing versus shrinking in our economy. Again, another way to understand this change is to simply think about two industries, manufacturing and healthcare. In the last 30 years, manufacturing has gone from employing about 18 million Americans and now employs about 12 million, so lost about a third of workers in the last 30 years. And healthcare employment over the same period of time, which involves more non-routine work, has doubled, now employs about 20 million workers. Um, so next slide. Um, so why might this time be different? So this will probably be familiar to a lot of people on the call. Um, you know, the performance of AI systems and machine learning is now on par and now exceeding human performance in some kind of basic metrics like speech recognition and object detection. So it's um, from a pure performance perspective doing things that we haven't seen before and being able to do basic human functions at levels that exceed our human abilities. Second, the ability for new software to scale, given that we've made kind of decades of hardware investments, whether it's in computers, cell phones, broadband, is increasing the pace of change. And again, I would uh, suggest if you consider Uber, again, as a business model, a company can effectively introduce software and just access the existing infrastructure that people already uh, have and it's having major impact on our economy and major impact on our workforce. Uh, third, and the next, illustrate, next slide will illustrate this um, further, AI and machine learning appear poised to impact not just a handful of industries, but every industry. The personal computer and robotics in the 80s had major business impacts um, among specific industries, especially among office admin and service jobs, and obviously in the manufacturing industry, as I just mentioned. But what AI and machine learning appear to um, have is a, a potential impact across industries. Um, finally, automation could have a more profound impact on today's workforce, just simply given the lack of stable employment opportunity in today's economy. There's not as many uh, jobs that are stable that people could potentially move to if they're disrupted by automation. So next slide. This estimate um, gives you a sense of the kind of the point I'm making about how automation could have a broader and uh, faster impact on our workforce. This estimate was done by the McKinsey Global Institute, and what it shows is that 
over the next 10 years by 2030, up to a third of workers in our economy could potentially require um, a switch in occupations. Um, next slide. And again, here, what I'm trying to show two two different points. One is the point I made earlier around the potential of automation to impact industries across our economy. As you can see, all industry all industries here, from uh, accommodation and food services, which have a high degree of their tasks potentially subject to automation, all the way down to educational services, which have much uh, fewer tasks that are subject to automation. But again, kind of an average potential. Um, automation capability of about 46% across all industries, but with important differences between, between industries. And the second uh, point here on this slide is the impact of automation appears to be dramatically different depending on your level of education. So um, the more highly educated you are, the more likely it is that automation will not disrupt uh, your occupation. So it's an important takeaway in terms of thinking about the policy, uh, the, the policy opportunities and the policy responses to what automation, the challenges of automation. Next slide. Um, I want to spend a second kind of on the iconic example that gets talked about in the future work conversation, and that's the impact that automation could have on uh, transportation. Um, and uh, here I'll, I'll just make a couple of basic points. One is, again, uh, I think what we have learned um, is that it's not fair to expect autonomous vehicles to be replacing all cars in the next two, three, four, five years. But again, looking out more broadly to what will happen over the next 10 years, there, um, you, there you see some potential dramatic impacts on work on the truck drive, you know, in terms of truck driving, you see an estimate that 1.3 to 1.7 million truck drivers could potentially lose their jobs. I would just caveat that a bit to say, while the driving aspect of their job will surely change with autonomous trucks, there is, um, I think, a very convincing argument to be made that you'll still need truck drivers to perform some basic functions that kind of go along with the act of driving, whether it's uh, the security around the uh, the payload of the, the truck and some of the more uh, difficult logistic sides of being a truck driver. So you, it may not be that they lose their jobs, but you will definitely experience a significant change in terms of the types of work. And autonomous vehicles, the estimate that we're showing there is that 305,000 taxi drivers and rideshare drivers could lose their, uh, lose their job, but that also, kind of, we're using that number based on the Bureau of Labor Statistics that tracks full-time employment. As many of you know, people who drive for Uber and Lyft do so to earn supplemental income. And the most recent estimate from Uber is that there's actually a million drivers, uh, a million Uber drivers in America. So the impact is on this slide probably understating a bit the number of people that could be impacted by the switch to autonomous driving. Um, next slide. So. I'll just kind of quickly make um, my final points here on the next two slides. Um, here, when I mentioned the 20th century, we built a system through uh, policies to encourage education and training, whether it was 
mandatory high school, a GI Bill, the Manpower Development Training Act, a whole ecosystem of education and training policies. We also developed a uh, safety net, again, that provided some uh, insurance against job loss, and obviously there were important um, protections that were put in place for workers who are being impacted by technology. And I would describe that as, again, a 20th century response to the ways in which industry was changing and the ways in which technology was changing. What we're seeing now, I think, requires a whole new set of ideas that I'm trying to kind of try to scope out a little bit on the next slide. Uh, and Eric can pick up on when uh, I transition. So if we could go to the next slide, I will quickly do that. Um, Oh, actually, let me make one point, and then I'll kind of do the policy wrap-up. Um, here, the, the challenge um, is that we have uh, invested a lot in education. Again, I have a 20th century response to uh, the need to better educate workers for the types of office jobs that became more prevalent in the 20th century. And again, you'll see we led the world in uh, spending, whether it was private and public sector spending, but we basically lagged the world in investments in training. So any uh, investments for people over the course of their career, once they entered the workforce, the United States basically relative to all other major industrialized countries was uh, lagging the world. So again, I think a 21st century challenge, we can go to the next slide, is to say how can we not only do better in terms of educating people in the first 20 years of their life, but how do you begin to create a system that relies on employers, relies on individual workers to have more access to education and skills training over the course of their career? How do we, in a world where their jobs are being disrupted and industries are being disrupted more frequently by automation, create better strategies to help individual communities and industries um, evolve? And finally, the last point I'd make, and then I'll turn it to Senator Lesser, is that we still don't really have a great understanding about how jobs and skills are changing and evolving. So there is a uh, vertical here that I think requires some attention just in terms of better understanding the impact of technology and automation and how it's changing our workforce. So with that, uh, I'll turn it to Senator Eric Lesser to talk about some of his work kind of implementing ideas along these lines. Great. Uh, ho hopefully everybody can hear me. Uh, it's uh, Eric Lesser here, and I, I just want to thank Al uh, Fitzpain for the just fantastic presentation. And um, Al is a friend from the Obama administration. He worked for uh, Secretary Geithner at some very intense moments in the first two years of the administration, and uh, we really—it's um, good to good to be working with you again, Al. And I want to thank, uh, of course, Ed and Jim. And I just want to make a, a brief comment about Business Forward. Um, I had the pleasure of working with Business Forward a little bit back in 2009 and 2010 when I was working as the assistant to David Axelrod, and then when I was working at the Council on Economic Advisors. And uh, we really owe a lot to Business Forward for the work they did uh, during the Recovery Act, during the um, Dodd-Frank financial reform process, uh, during the response to the recession, and of course uh, the passage of the Affordable Care Act. Business Forward was really key and instrumental to all of that. So it's really an honor to be working with them again and to be uh, involved with them again. And for everyone listening, you're, you're really part of a very important organization that's really the voice of America's uh, business and entrepreneurial community in, in D.C. in a very constructive, proactive way. So uh, great to 
to be here. Uh, I thought what I would do is just quickly zoom through some of the things we're doing specifically in Massachusetts related to everything that Al uh, just laid out. Um, for context, I chair our Committee on Economic Development and Emerging Technologies, and very purposefully in Massachusetts, we, we merge those legislative committees because we really view economic development growth as being one and the same with embracing and appreciating and understanding the emerging technologies, how the how the economy all around us is changing. And Massachusetts is in a unique spot because in many respects we have been among the greatest beneficiaries of the changes in high tech and automation. We're the home of MIT, of Harvard, of Kendall Square, of the life sciences industry, and we've really seen our economy boom uh, as the overall economy has moved towards those industries. Uh, but we were also and are still a manufacturing state, and the area of Massachusetts I represent uh, is really one of the main manufacturing centers of really the entire country. Uh, American Bosch was located here. Westinghouse was located here in Springfield, Massachusetts. Indian Motorcycles was located here. And we're still part of a major corridor, uh, in particular around precision machining. Pratt & Whitney is just to our south, for example, uh, in Connecticut. Uh, so we've done uh, a few things, and we've been doing this also in conjunction with New Deal, uh, which is a group I've been a part of that, that Ed mentioned at the beginning. Uh, we passed a, a major economic development bill last year that had a couple of key parts, uh, one of which was a dramatic increase in apprenticeship programs. We passed an apprenticeship tax credit uh, here in Massachusetts, which was targeted to some key industries, in particular manufacturing um, and healthcare, which Al mentioned in his slide, and um, trying to build up those middle-level skills capacities through internships and apprenticeships. Um, we also did a lot to scale up uh, placements and internships around nursing, uh, which is another area of acute need and, and, and labor shortage. We also uh, put together a package of bills which is still working its way through the legislature that I authored around future of work. Uh, and so that really has three parts to it. Uh, the first is a portable benefits pilot, which is actually based off of a federal plan that Mark Warner in Virginia had put together, which is to create um, some, some evidence-based testing of how we can decouple employee benefits from employment status. Uh, because really, the economy has changed. The era of being a 25, you know, clocking into a job at 25, clocking out at 65 with a pension and health care all along the way, it's just not how millennials are working anymore. It's not how our economy is functioning anymore. And we need to stay relevant and keep up with that. So um, this would this would be experimenting with allowing, for example, health care benefits, um, things like workman's compensation, disability benefits, the other sort of safety net programs travel specifically with the worker rather than being dependent on a top-down relationship from an employer. Really building off actually work from uh, Obamacare and the Affordable Care Act, which was really all about trying to help decouple um, in some, some respects health insurance uh, from employment status. Another uh, major item that we've been working on, which is part of this future of work package, is lifelong learning accounts. Uh, so this would work a little bit like a 401k. Uh, there would be a, uh, an account that travels with the worker uh, rather than de being dependent on the employer. It would work through some combination of a, of a government 
deposit into that account, a worker deposit, and an employer deposit that the employee could then use for kind of iterative job training. And, and I, I want to give a thanks to Al, who worked with us closely on this proposal in the Aspen uh, Future of Work initiative, uh, because the idea here is if you are a, a mid, you know, a mid-skill person, machinist, for example, working in an advanced manufacturing facility you don't necessarily need help to go to a four-year college. What you need is help with, for example, a 12-week training program at the local community college to learn 3D printing uh, or, um, you know, or a 10-week night program to learn a new, new uh, CAD CAM uh, programming software. Uh, and right now, our, um, our worker training programs are, are frankly not flexible enough or responsive enough to provide growth with the workers and employee, employers are often reluctant to fund that kind of training uh, when they don't have assurances that workers will stay and the labor market is fluid and so on. So lifelong learning accounts try to tackle that. Uh, another issue that we've, uh, another item that we've worked on is trying to set up a commission on the future of work. Uh, again, this is based off federal legislation that Mark Warner uh, has filed, um, again, out of Virginia. And the idea here is to really get the various components uh, really related to slide 11, the various components of state government, our higher education institutions, our Department of Labor uh, and Employment, our Unemployment Office, our Community College Systems, our Economic Development Offices and Chambers of Commerce, finally working together to coordinate and be thoughtful about how we're going to take on these changes. And we've had a couple of uh, test cases, uh, the, probably the two largest that have recently come up is our Airbnb uh, and taxi debate. Uh, of course, this is happening all over the country. Uh, I would point to Massachusetts as a model where we were able to set up a um, an account to help taxi drivers with the transition uh, to ride sharing. Uh, we were able to put a, a fee and some licensing around uh, the um, the Uber and Lyft and ride sharing services, and also kind of bring them into a coherent regulatory environment. Uh, and we were able to do that, I think, without limiting access access to those ride-sharing services, which are very popular uh, with the public. Uh, and then we uh, similarly had a, a major legislative program that we just finished around Airbnb and trying to, again, bring Airbnb and transient accommodations into the matrix of uh, regulations and oversight that we have with hotels and also protecting the hosts, protecting the workers connected to those industries and ensuring, for example, adequate insurance and public safety requirements for people who are staying uh, in Airbnbs. Uh, and then, you know, just final two quick other items I'll just throw in there to be to think about uh, before we open up to questions is the role of infrastructure in a lot of this. Because something we've seen in Massachusetts is the economic disparities are now uh, very prevalent around geography. And I actually think that this is something that was lost in, 20, in the run-up to the 2016 elections, which is if you take Massachusetts, for example, the economy in Western Mass, where I'm from, is much more similar to the economy in Michigan or Ohio or Pennsylvania than it is to the economy in Boston or San Francisco or New York City. Uh, and so we need to do more, for example, in investments in high-speed rail lines, uh, which would put a lot of people to work, but also help bridge some of the growing gaps we're seeing between geographies. Uh, we have an initiative around remote working to try to leverage, you know, 
large numbers of remote workers that are coming out of these overpriced cities like Boston or New York, which are just right near us, leveraging some of the advantages we have with good quality of life, open space, things like that. So um, I think it's important to think spatially, too, about this dynamic, which is unfortunately a lot of the industries that Al outlined, which are most prone to automation, are also very geographically concentrated in areas of the country that are already seeing uh, the greatest pain. So uh, that's just another element that I think is important for policymakers to think through, and, and infrastructure is a major component of that. So with that, just want to again say thank you and uh, looking forward to questions. Thanks, uh, Senator Lester. Really appreciate it. And thank you, Al, uh, for both of your um, you know excellent insights, and uh, both from a policy perspective and from sort of the uh, on the ground in the legislative, uh, you know, the, the dance of legislation trying to get some of this work um, passed in the state legislature. Uh, it's great to hear your perspectives. Uh, once again, folks, if you would like to, uh, we've gotten a lot of questions emailed in, but if you would like to speak and uh, ask a comment or a question or make a comment or ask a question, please press 1 on your phone, your dial pad. Uh, and while people are doing that, I, there's... Um, Several questions that have come in. I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, batch two of them kind of together uh, that are somewhat related. Uh, Cliff Brush from Oregon um, and Leslie Talbot from New York are asking about um, uh, about sort of formal education and its and its role in in this uh, in this process of training training workers for the future of work. You know, Cliff is asking, is there a trend toward hiring based on experience or skills rather than on earned degrees? And if so, you know, what are those careers and businesses, and will that trend continue? So I think, Al, you touched on that a little bit around some of the trends, but specifically around, you know, this question of is the, is the, is the degree, is the four-year college degree less important or the postgraduate degree is less important versus these, uh, the skills training? And then Leslie is focused specifically on thoughts and strategies for creating better alignment between secondary schools, post-secondary education institutions, and small businesses and industries. So how do we think about that sort of chain uh, that takes, you know, someone from high school to employment and the handoffs there and identifying what skills are needed so that our post-secondary institutions are actually training people for the skills they're going to need? Um, I'll kind of open that up to Al and, and you know, Senator Lesser for your, your – or Senator Lesser, whoever wants to kind of start out with that, uh, with your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm happy to go first and uh, – Senator Lesser has some additional thoughts to chime in too, but um, I guess on the first question, I would say both are uh, very important for some of the reasons that I, that I mentioned. Again, uh, I, a four-year degree I think is going to continue to be uh, important if you kind of look at the economic statistics around the kind of earnings premium that you get from a four-year degree relative to uh, a high school degree or some um, uh, some degree, some amount of kind of post-secondary education, there still is a um, a lot of value that people who are entering the workforce are receiving from getting a four-year degree. There's some interesting work that's being done, I think, especially in the state of Colorado around a project that's called Skillful, which is trying to develop a, uh, a kind of a transition to a skills-based labor market where they are helping employers hire and develop job uh, descriptions that are based on skills rather than credentials, then trying to use that to identify for people who are applying for those jobs the skills that they need and where the training providers would be that could give them those skills. So that is like, uh, you know, a, a different model than 
many employers have that still kind of rely on credentials. I guess what I would note um, finally just on this point is uh, what happens after you get your credential, whether it's a high school degree, a community college degree, a four-year degree, you're going to be in the workforce for potentially 40 years. And so to Eric, so Senator Lester's point about the, what workers need today is going to be less uh, potentially uh, at the age of 30 or 35 or 40 or 50, well, do I need to go get another degree? I think it's these kind of shorter, um, uh, higher intensity training programs where companies identify specific skill needs as those change quickly and you have the ability over the course of your career to be able to adapt and acquire new skills throughout your career that I think is going to be the most important skill for people who want to be successful over the course of their career. Um, and I would just say just on the alignment with small businesses and uh, work opportunities, the trend towards um, work-based learning I just think is essential and the legislation that passed in Massachusetts around encouraging apprenticeships, evolving work-based um, or work-study programs so that uh, people that are in school have the ability to work for employers rather than just simply on their campus I think are two quick examples of ways that policy can shift more towards work-based learning opportunities which I think is again one of the kind of critical changes that we need to see happen over uh, you know the next five to ten years yeah I would um I would just I think that's all exactly right I, I would just chime in with it with with two thoughts on that one is um, I do think actually that higher ed is in I would dare to say a bit of a of a crisis um, there will always be a uh, demand of course for a four-year college degree and for law degrees and doctorates and, and all of that. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think especially the just crisis of student debt has really brought this to a head, which is, is this model correct of trying to direct as many people as we can into a four-year bachelor's degree that may or may not prepare them for a high-paying job afterward? Uh, I can tell you one of the things that's forced this point here in Massachusetts is we've seen a series of small private colleges actually close. Uh, Hampshire College very close to me is on the verge of closing. Uh, Mount Ida College in Newton uh, recently closed, was acquired by UMass, uh, UMass Amherst. There's been several others uh, that have been talked about and, and pending. Uh, and there's also a lot of growing evidence that the debt crisis is diminishing that historic earning premium uh, that, uh, you know, that college graduates have had, because if you factor in the debt payments, it takes longer, for example, to begin to buy a house or build equity. Uh, I'll give you an example, actually, of a great initiative in, in Springfield, where I live, um, that's really trying to work on closing the skills gap and is, like Skillful, is um, moving towards almost, they call it like a merit badge model of worker training. So we have a lot of institutional employers around Western Mass. So, you know, Mass Mutual is an example, big uh, insurance company. They'll go to this training program called Tech Foundry, and Tech Foundry will literally give the, the HR managers menus of merit badge style skills. So, you know, uh, a badge on Excel, Excel expertise, a badge on um, 
you know, information technology, security, a badge on, you know, XYZ, on and on and on. And they can kind of almost order up the skills they need, and then Tech Foundry will has the flexibility to then go and to specifically train uh, train the uh, participants in this program on those exact skills and then get them directly into a, a preset employment. Uh, you know, very interesting model. Uh, it's still relatively untested. It's only been around for a couple of years and we're just starting to see it work at a, at a big scale, but uh, very exciting and, um, and it's gotten good feedback so far. So absolutely, I think, uh, you know, um, Closing the gap between employers and employees is really going to be uh, very, very important. And that for that old kind of model of four-year residential college, while a wonderful experience, and it's very important to make sure everyone has access to that if that's what they want. We need to make sure that there are realistic pathways for people who want to do a trade uh, or want to work in manufacturing because you can make a very good, uh, you can build a very good career for yourself in those areas. Yeah, those are great points. I'll, I'll just add one thing. This is Ed that, that you know, I, I used to help lead an education nonprofit here in Dallas, Texas called Big Thought, and we actually worked with high school students on digital badging for skills and connected those to employers here in Dallas. Uh, that would, you know, look for uh, three, you know, two or three or some combination of digital badges. And if a student earned those throughout the school year, they would receive an internship uh, for the summer at that employer. And it was just a great way for those, for those students to start thinking about the skills they were developing and getting those credentialized and getting rewarded with a, a business internship opportunity. So I think that kind of work can even start at the, at the high school level to get kids to start thinking in those, in those ways in terms of skill building. Okay, let me go to a, let me go to another question uh, uh, that's been emailed into us, and this is from uh, Rhonda Benda. From, she's the co-founder and CEO of Venture Smarter in Jamaica, New York, and she's really asking a question about um, about equity in this whole process. So, how do what, what efforts do we think should be done, and what policies are needed uh, to 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 bridge the digital divide um, when it comes to future work? Uh, Alan and Sinister, do you have some thoughts on, on the digital divide and how we overcome that to make sure that the future of work addresses the sort of equity issues? Um, yeah, I can I can chime in real briefly with just some examples uh, in my community. Uh, I, I represent Springfield, which is a majority minority city uh, in Western Mass, and, and this is something we we spend a, a lot of time on. Uh, you know, I think one of the things that's very important to appreciate about this is, you know, manufacturing in particular is an industry that has historically been very very male uh, and very white, at least in Massachusetts, and uh, a lot of work needs to be done with diversifying the trade for example, um, with diversifying the way the, the mentorship routes and the access points that people have to get into those industries. So, um, for example, we've worked with a, a, um, a woman who owns a manufacturing facility in Western Mass who has specifically run an initiative around trying to get more women uh, into the trades and into manufacturing. And what we found is the mentorship networks really are effective when they can see a peer, when they can see another woman in the field, um, having success, enjoying it, doing a good job, uh, and then building out some capacity around getting, for example, those folks into classrooms, opening up more doors in the community, uh, for getting more uh, community members onto the factory floors, for example, to see uh, what kinds of jobs there are. We've also done a lot around uh, minority and um, and.
and female hiring requirements, for example, for public purchases and big public construction projects. So uh, when, a, when a large new school or new public facility is being built in Massachusetts, we have pretty aggressive requirements for um, minority and female participation, which has helped diversify the trades uh, because we now have programs in carpentry, elect uh, electrical, HVAC, all of these often heavily male um, uh, trades have, have been diversified. Uh, we've also worked with a, a group, Girls Who Code, uh, which has been supported in part by the Mass Mutual Foundation. Uh, so there's, there's, there's a lot lacking there, un unfortunately, and a lot more uh, that needs to be done. But I do think that one of the important things we want to recognize is building you know, really from the ground up, those those mentorship networks and really doing the diligent work of getting into communities and giving people exposure to the uh, opportunities that come with uh, with these these types of fields is very very important. Yeah, I guess I would just add two quick two quick points uh, just to build on uh, what Senator Lesser said. One is, and we write about it at kind of greater length in our automation and the changing economy report. Um, that maybe we can send around as a, a, a link, as a, a follow-up to this. But we um, don't have great data on uh, kind of who's going to be impacted by automation, by race. And there's been some work that we cite in our paper that shows that at least among the occupations in industries that involve more routine work, those occupations and industries are disproportionately um, held by uh, you know, individuals from communities of color, so it does look like there's potentially greater impact in terms of dislocation on communities of color that are uh, in jobs that are routine. The second point I would make is when it comes to providing um, access to training opportunities, that's important, but for um, you know, uh, kind of lower income communities, what's equally important is the ability to provide transportation, emergency financial assistance. There's a, a whole set of kind of wraparound services that are important from a design perspective so that you get to uh, make sure people have access to these training programs and you get to keep them in the training programs without an emergency effectively preventing somebody from being able to complete it. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, thank you both. Um, so we, we actually are, are at the end of our time here. I think there's a lot of a lot more questions that are coming that have come in. Um, but the good thing is that this is just the start of our working group, and we're going to have uh, several more uh, uh, discussions and and presentations moving forward. We got uh, several questions around the gig economy and what's being done to stop the race to the bottom uh, in the gig economy. And I know that uh, that Al and and I think Senator Lester have done some work on that and you know around portable benefits and other areas that I think we should be talking about in this working group. Uh, lots of questions around artificial intelligence and, and the impact of that. Uh, and so I think we're gonna we're gonna have some robust uh, robust briefings uh, and great participation from folks um, all across this working group uh, moving forward. So um, I want to just say thanks again to to Al and to Senator Lester for leading this briefing. Uh, we're going to be um, sending out a survey to folks as well following the call. If you've got further thoughts on the issue brief or comments, uh, you know, we're, we're going to be including some of those uh, potentially in the brief as well as we publish it. So please, uh, please stay engaged with us, uh, and we will um, follow back up with you uh, for the topic of the next briefing. And, uh, and thank you again for joining us. So, Allison or Lester, thanks for your time, and we'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks thank so you. Appreciate it.